meeting is two 10-minute speakers, the first of which will speak on the seventh tradition, followed by our information break and then our main speaker who will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10-minute speak, speaker to chair on the seventh tradition is Prisha. Okay, I'm an alcoholic and my name is Preacher. And thank you, Matt, for asking me to speak on this tradition. I don't know why you did. I am uh, probably the least qualified to talk about financial sobriety or anything like that. Just to give an example of that, like, I mean, all, I've, you know, like, I'll give you an example of my budgeting. It's like if I have $2,000, I go like, well, you know, 1,800 of that has to go on some sort of shoes or jacket or something like that. And then, you know, maybe we need a cab someplace or something, you know, so that's like, but I'm trying to get better. I've, I've only been sober for 21 years, so we'll get there <laughs> with, with the financial stuff. So anyway, um, and I'm really, you know, this is, this is a really big privilege to be here. This is also, I've been sober since March 9th of 2001. Uh, the Atlantic group is my home group. My sponsor's name is Ron. I've, you know, gone through the steps and I've tried to practice the principles of A's, 12 steps to the best of my ability. And uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about this stuff. And like I thought, I, you know, I, I'm like, oh, 10 minutes, I have all this stuff to say. I don't, and now that I'm standing here, really, I go, how will I fill four minutes? Um, <laughs> so here's the long form of Tradition 7. The AA groups themselves ought to be fully supported by the voluntary contributions of their own members. We think that each group should soon achieve this ideal, that any public solicitation of funds using the name of Alcoholics Anonymous is highly dangerous, whether by groups, clubs, hospitals, or other outside agencies, that acceptance of large gifts from any source or of contributions carrying any obligation, whatever, is unwise. Then too, we view with much concern those AA treasuries which continue beyond prudent reserves to accumulate funds for no stated AA purpose. Experience has often warned us that nothing can so surely destroy our spiritual heritage as futile disputes over money, property, and authority. And um, I guess there's some pretty intense wording in there, like, you know, never, and like, you know, they say, talk about like how it's highly dangerous to be affiliated with anyone, and that's why, um, and when I read the, when I read the seventh tradition, the little, uh, what would you, essay on it in the 12 and 12, you know, Bill talks about, um, you know, the, a lot about the experiences in the beginning, and how like, you know, and I will say, too, like, I, one of my favorite lines in there, I, I, I like little, I love, like, the language in, like, uh, that book because it's a lot of, like, Bill's language of, like, that time period and stuff like that. So, like, it's a little archaic in a way and old-timey and very warm to my heart. Um, you know, when he discusses, like, AA people being tighter than the bark on a tree. Um, <laughs> and if you've gone to the diner and see how people tip, you can see how that is true amongst <laughs> most of us. And, um, you know, but like the real spiritual principle, like behind all this stuff is, we, you know, it is a real humility. Like it's a humility because like we don't want to go ask a hospital for money or like have some foundation give us money so that like we can have like a nicer space or something like that. We want to as an AA group, this one and others in general, 
to be able to pass the basket and be self-supporting through our own contributions. And, you know, and what that means also is, like, you know, we also don't want to, like, pass the basket, you know, one time and, you know, hope for the best at the end of the month. You know, like, we don't just give a dollar, you know, at one meeting for the month and then go, like, well, you know, I hope we can pay the month rent at the end of the month. That's why, like, this and other groups have a prudent reserve. Like, you know, we put a little money to the side because we don't know if something, like, look at what we just went through. There was a two-year pandemic um, and, like, as far as I know, this group continued to pay rent here. Well, that rent just didn't fall from the sky, and it certainly didn't come from my finances. I know that. <laughs> so, you know, so we had money set aside to pay for that, and that's very important to do because, again, it's all this stuff ends up being like about humility, you know, and like, and um, and I also want to just say, like, I. I was telling people before that this is the second time I've ever talked about a tradition in my life. Like I, I've been going to meetings for many years. Like I, I spoke one time at um, the 79th Street workshop on a tradition. Either Ron or one of the people he asked me to speak on it. I I probably didn't do that great because I wasn't invited back to speak on another one. So, but I, you know, but I, and I don't remember. Thank you. Good. Okay. So. So it is, you know, it's a little, it's a little daunting. Let's just say that. Like, I feel much more comfortable talking about other things besides this. And then also, it's like the money, you know, like, it, it also talks in that about like how money and spirituality really, you know, they ca you can't really mix money and spirituality. But in Alcoholics Anonymous, through bitter experience, that we've learned that we have to, you know, and that's where too, like. That is why they talk a lot about in Alcoholics Anonymous about like a meeting remaining poor. And like for example, like when we give money here, you know, we pay the rent here and there's, you know, there's expenses like, you know, literature we have to, and then also we want to make sure that like as a group and as any group, we want to give meaningfully to the service structure of Alcoholics Anonymous, which includes things like intergroup and the general service office and like, you know, giving money to hospitals and institutions and things like that. Although I don't, I, I don't think it's, it's corrections, I think it's called, I don't think it's called H&I anymore, but that, I may be wrong about that. But anyway, you know, and all that stuff too, like that takes money to do, you know, and I, and I just, and like, and the other thing is, I don't want to like, you know, I don't want to stand up here and say like, you know, you ought to be doing this. I can only speak from my experience. And like another little thing that I will talk about is like the fact that like, you know, I do like to spend a lot of money on myself. You know, God has really blessed me, you know, and, I, and maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I don't have a big 401k plan or a big plan for next week or next month. But, you know, I also like have to check myself with stuff like the basket. If I'm going to show up in a pair of like thousand dollar shoes, I have to put a little more than a dollar in the basket for myself. You know, like I, I don't, I really am not going to live with myself like doing that. And like, and, and I've heard people say before too, like, you know, you know, we don't want to put any money in the basket, but we come rolling up in an Uber with a Starbucks and like, you know, shopping bags and, you know, flowers and gifts for our sponsee on their anniversary. And here, AA, here's a dollar begrudgingly, you know, the, and again, this is not about me. Go, uh, I'm going to give the pitch. Everybody's going to up it tonight, you know, um, <laughs> which is, you know, but I mean, you could, I mean, I would like to, 
after this talk, I'm expecting you to break the bank tonight, okay? And, um, you know, we, we're so, and, but we are so blessed in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the other thing, too. By remaining poor and by not having all this organization around money and stuff like that, we also get to be autonomous and free from, like, we don't have to, like, we don't get, $10,000 a month from, say, like Coca-Cola or something, and then have to show up at their board meeting and go, well, you know, so-and-so wasn't in their attire last night, and uh, <laughs> do you think you can still give us 10000 or because they were dressed poorly, you know, give us five? You know, we don't have to do that. We get to decide all the time, you know, which is a blessing, a blessing, a blessing. And, um, and then the other quick thing I just wanted to say is, like, just about our group, you know, somebody gave, Rodney, who helped me prepare this stuff, and thank you very much for your help, Rodney, and, um, and other people that I talked to and stuff like that, too. You know, we do give, like, to the general service, and we give to intergroup and stuff like that. And, you know, and this is why I keep piling in the baskets tonight, because, like, last year for 2021, this group gave to the entire AA service structure $26,697. Like, that's a lot of dough coming from an AA meeting. And that's you guys doing that, and me, and all of us, you know. And I don't, and, you know, it's just, so, again, the whole idea of Tradition 7 is to remain humble and to, you know, have a relationship with God that says, you know, I want to, and no amount of money for myself is going to pay back what Alcoholics Anonymous has given to me. I could give and give, and, like, it has saved my life. It's changed my life. It's given me relationships I never thought possible. So um, just remember that, that it's not just like, you know, we're not just putting in a dollar so we can pay the rent. There's all these other things that money has to go to. And like, you know, we do it with a humble heart. And I'm just going to close with this. One of my friends was just telling me last week that God has the money. I just show up and God's going to give me money in some way. You know, and that's 100% true. So with that, I will close. That's it. Thanks. Our second 10-minute speaker is Susan. Hi, I'm Susan, alcoholic, and my sober date is April 10, 2014. My sponsor, Carolyn, is here. She's from Connecticut, and my sober sister's here. A uh, little bit of background. I don't have too much time. Uh, my background, family background, is kind of boring because it's very conservative, very traditional. I grew up like a very uh, uptight, super uptight, so I didn't drink there. And I came to United States for college, and then I started drinking. But when I came to college, I went down south in Texas for undergrad. Uh, I was in a part of D1 equestrian team, and I met a boy. Very, very handsome boy. He was in the same um, football team he was in. I, I didn't grow up with that football, so I didn't even know what it was. I wasn't even speaking English properly at the time. I don't even know how it happened. <laughs> and, and next six years, and he matched my energy, like, yeah hecticness, everything, and uh, next six years we do like a lot of damage, and we moved to another city. So, some reason I, I was high functioning, so I party hard, I 
I can drink all night, go to school and finish. I was able to do that, but he wasn't. He was doing a lot of drugs, and drugs was never part of my story. I never even done hard drugs, but I see him doing all the, the guy, uh, hard stuff during maybe the last four years. And it was very, very like, difficult, but uh, growing up in that conservative environment, you have to deal with everything in a private, so I deal with everything, those stuff in private. And one, um, one day I moved to like after grad school, so it's like geography everywhere. The geography is always part of my story. So I was always moving somewhere, studying somewhere around the world. And one day, uh, there, I was start, just starting to intern in this company in the West Coast because they were sponsoring my immigration at the time after my grad school. And I went there like two weeks, I get a phone call back to the Texas. And I went back. I went back and it was like August, uh, August, very, very hot day in Houston. If you've ever been to Houston, like that's like sauna. And that day my life is like, my life trajectory like really changed that day. And I went, uh, his mom called me. So uh, I took the next flight, I arrived there, but his mom wasn't there, two police officers waiting for me. And I was just, okay, it's our, like, the biggest fear is coming true. Now he's gonna go to jail. He'd been drunk driving so many times before. He didn't have even license, like, suspended. And, but uh, two police officers drive uh, me to the morgue, like, where I need to identify the body. So, I, uh, that day, literally, my life trajectory changed because his mom passed, uh, passed out because of the heat, so I had to do all of the stuff by myself. And the car was like paper. You threw paper, like wrinkle it up and smashed like that. And I don't even know, connect how it's like car like that inside human was like full, somehow recognizable. And after that day, I finished all of the stuff and I moved to directly to, I abandoned that company. And I moved to directly to New York when I was 24. So I had two, three things going on. First was I was like, I would never date another American guy ever again. <laughs> and I didn't until, like up until last year, I didn't. And, <laughs> Second, uh, second one was like, I can't take nothing seriously in life. I cannot take it. Like I started taking life not serious, like nothing. It's like life become a, like, like how it's described. There is no tomorrow. So imagine that 24 years old moving into New York, no plan, nothing, just there's living like there is no tomorrow. I was partying so hard. And some reason I managed to, like high functioning. So I found another work sponsor. I work in this corporate thing in my cubicle. So now I started drinking very, very, very hard. So I got sober 27. So my progression of uh, disease was like very, very fast. 24 to 27, it's like I was in, uh, 
bottom of my drinking, if I, if I describe, it would be like one day dog away from good country song. It was very sad, like <laughs> literally super sad. Curtains down in my bedroom with the vodka. Like I had a great deal of shame drinking vodka because it's like associated with my stereotype, my cultural stereotype, but I always drink because that doesn't smell right. <laughs> but uh, then uh, my sister, who was living at the time, who took me to my first meeting in Tuesday night. This was very first AA meeting for me. And I sat in a balcony when we were upstairs. And I, I never changed the seats. I was, my entire sobriety, I sat there. And in the beginning, I was very, very resistant. <laughs> I, uh, if you guys ask me to go to diner, I'm like, I'm not a diner kind of person. Now, after I go through all the diners with you guys, I am a diner kind of person now. <laughs> then I, uh, I went to three sponsors my first year, second year, like three times uh, going through steps. Somehow it's like I left something out in my fourth, fourth step. I was sitting there like for a while. I had like less than 20 names and like me part nothing. And I sit there for a while because I was like, I'm not like you guys. I'm not an angry person, all the things. And I really believe that. But uh, when I met my Carolyn, it changed everything. That's like... Uh, way she opened me up with the, through the steps. And even a big book, somehow I did very well uh, academically, so she did something like different. She used to give me this, all the questions. I can read the big books, and I read big books at the time, many, many times. Every, every Wednesday I'm at the big book meeting. I went through other, and I still have questions like, I had to look for it. I really, that works very, very well. And even fourth step, we did it like in the church in Astoria, where she used to live. And it was life-changing. And because of you guys today, like uh, my life is so full because of these steps, you guys. Every, not because uh, anything I have outside. There's nothing to do, nothing associated with. That to me, it's like a miracle. Like I don't seek like outside things and it's like, and these days I noticed, few years back I was uh, in a cybersecurity. I was in a meeting, work meeting, and a table across me was homeland. The woman was sitting on the table across me. Man was sitting here, and the woman was uh, U.S. like Homeland Security, Cybersecurity Director. Man was Air Force uh, Cybersecurity Director. I'm like this immigrant girl who just want to have fun. I'm like, oh, <laughs> why I'm here? Like, why? It's how it happened. But all this uh, result of uh, I'm doing these steps, I'm doing like this life journey with you guys. And in the beginning, I was very resistant, and I was thinking I would live this very, very boring life. Like there is no alcohol, not like no fun. But I'm having last eight years. I had so much fun. Like I'm so much fun doing it, and I. 
I'm grateful. Like, if you are a newcomer here, like, if you think, like, your life's going to be so boring, it's like I couldn't be any wrong with that. So thank you so much for everybody. <laughs> to the newcomer that there's hope. And what I mean by recovered is that I'm successfully treated, which is different than being cured. Okay. So if you have high blood pressure and you take high blood pressure medication, it can control your high blood pressure. But if you stop taking your medication, the high blood pressure will come back. So that's the case here. AA is my medicine. As long as I take my medicine, then I am successfully treated and I can have a normal life. But if I stop taking my medicine, then all bets are off. My sobriety date is August 26, 1997. I have a sponsor, I have sponsees. My home group is the Living Now group here in Manhattan. Um, I do service, prayer and meditation are a daily part of my uh, sobriety practice. Wasn't always the case, but is now. Um, I don't think that I could get back to these rooms if I relapsed. It was very, very difficult for me to get sober. So I listen very carefully when, when people relapse and come back into the rooms. And most often what they say is that they cut back on their meetings or they were prescribed um, painkillers by a doctor. Right? So I keep up with my meetings. Going to meetings is non-negotiable. I don't cut back on my meetings, and uh, I approach prescription painkillers with extreme caution and try to avoid them if at all possible. I have service commitments as well. I'm an alcoholic of the hopeless variety, and what that means is that when alcohol goes into my body, it triggers a craving an insatiable craving, which means I have to have more and more and more, and I can't stop drinking. Worse than that, I have a mental obsession, and what that means is that even if I do manage to put that drink down, my mind will eventually convince me by some weird turn of thought, some subtle feeling, some whatever, it, my mind will convince me that it's safe to drink again. So what I really need this program for is to treat that second part of my disease, right? Because I can treat the first part by abstinence, but that second part of the disease, which is my mind, that is what I need this program for. Underneath all of that, I also have a, a God-shaped hole, a spiritual void. And I tried to fill that hole with something other than God for many, many years. And this program taught me to fill that God-shaped hole with God. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what I, I believe created that hole in me. Um, when I was growing up, my dad uh, was a compulsive gambler. It meant that there was a lot of financial insecurity, a lot of craziness. He was borrowing money from really 
scary people all the time who would come to the house looking for him. Um, he was emotionally abusive to me. And um, he would steal my allowance. My <laughs> it was just a crazy, crazy, it was a crazy household to be in. There was a threat of physical violence, although not actual violence. And one time I ran away, and the funny thing about it was that I took my cello with me, you know? And it's like the, one of the least portable instruments ever, right? You know, I, for some reason I thought, okay, I gotta take my cello with me. Um, you know, and so at some point my dad took up with, with a mistress, and he told me that that mistress was everything that any man could ever want in a woman. And she was blonde and had blue eyes. She didn't look like me. And because he had told me on a regular basis that I was unattractive, um, that said to me that I was unlovable. I was unloved and unlovable, you know. The other thing is that um, I was incredibly unpopular at school. I was a seriously nerdy kid. And I wanted more than anything to be liked by the cool kids. And so at one point I saw an ad in TV Guide for the Barbizon Model School. And I begged my mom to let me um, you know, like enroll in the school because my plan, my big plan, was to become a model. And if I could become a model, then the cool kids would like me. So she enrolled me in the school and I got my first ad, and I just imagined, you know, all of the cool kids gathering around me and loving me. And it couldn't have gone more wrong, because what happened was Mario Cuomo was governor at the time, and he saw the ad in the subway, and he had it banned. He said, <laughs> he said it was, um, what did he say? Promoted racial stereotypes, okay? My ad, the one ad that I had to do, okay, so it made headline news, okay, the New York Post, the, the headline was sneaker snafu, it was, a, it was a sneaker ad, okay, so like my, my face was all over all the newspapers, it was on all the T, you know, all the nighttime TV news, and this happened right before school was starting. So the first day of school, when I got to school, some of the bad kids had ripped down one of the ads from the subway and brought it, one of these big things, and they were waiting for me in the lobby. <laughs> and they were all laughing, and they all said, you know, and you wanted to be a model, and like something inside me just died that day. Like if I had had supernatural powers like that movie Carrie, you know, that, like all the, the doors would have gotten closed down, and like, you know, but I didn't have those powers. <laughs> so at the time, you know, my, my solution was to commit suicide. And I did that, well, I tried to do that by taking what I thought was a lethal dose of aspirin. Now, I did not have a sophisticated knowledge of pharmaceuticals at the time. And so my calculation was that if you took two aspirin for a headache, then 22 aspirin must be lethal. So I took the 22 aspirin and I waited to die. And um, as I'm waiting and waiting, you know, I think, well, what if there isn't just oblivion at the other end of this. Like, what if I'm in big trouble? And so I made myself throw up what I thought was a lethal dose of aspirin. And instead proceeded to, once I had the ability to, fill that void that I felt with alcohol. Um, you know, I think that we all have a basic need to feel loved, to feel lovable, to feel safe, you know? And I didn't have any of that. We have the, the need to feel that there's joy in life and that there's hope. And I didn't have 
any of that when I was when I was growing up. You know, I didn't have anywhere that um, that uh, that made me feel safe. So, you know, I found alcohol because the alcohol gave me the oblivion that I was seeking. And um, you know, I think I probably would have started drinking. I started drinking in college. I probably would have started drinking earlier than that if I had had the money to do it. But drinking, you know, I, I grew up in, in Manhattan, very expensive. I didn't really have the finances. And the, the reason that I know that um, it was a financial issue that kept me from drinking earlier is because I was accepted into college and the tour guides gave us all a tour. And one place that they took us was the on-campus bar grill. And one of the first things that I noticed when I went there is that a pint of beer, you know, one of these, costs 75 cents. And that clenched it for me. That was it. That is what made me decide to go to that college, was that it cost 75 cents to have a pint of beer. And I spent the rest of the night at that bar drinking 75 cent pints of beer while the other students were sitting down eating dinner and asking pertinent questions about the curriculum and whatever. I'm downing myself. I, I was in heaven, you know? Um, so, you know, I drank for 15 years, <laughs> and I'm not going to go into all the, all the details of, you know, that'll take up more time than, than I have and that anybody would want to listen, but, you know, the, the way that I like to think about it is, like, what are the things that happened when I was drinking that never happened in sobriety? Or, yeah, what are the things that I did in sobriety that never happened now, right? So, first off, in sobriety, I've never set my apartment on fire. And I did that when I was drinking. Um, in sobriety, I've never propositioned a boss, an employer. And I did that as, uh, as an active drunk. Um, these days, if I buy Hall's mentholiptus, it's because I have a sore throat. In sobriety, there was another motive. So what happened one day is I, I worked in this clinic, and in a, in, a, in a blackout, I set my alarm for the wrong time, and I didn't get to work until 11.30, and I was supposed to be there at like seven, okay? So I'm seeing patients and whatever. At the end of the session, when it's lunchtime, the head nurse comes to me and she brings me a bag of mints, you know, those circular hard mints that are striped red and white. And she says, you take this bag of mints and you find a way to cut that smell before you come back here in the afternoon. You know, I used to smell, I used to reek of alcohol. It was like coming out of my pores, you know. So I was always very conscious of how close people were to me, right? I had my fume zone, like I didn't want anybody to get any closer than this, right? So, you know, for most people I think if, if somebody gave them a bag of mints like that and she was looking at me with this look of disgust, you know, that would be a wake-up call. Um, for me, I said, oh my God, why didn't I think of mints before? What a brilliant idea, you know? And so I set off on a quest to find the perfect breath mint to hide the smell of alcohol on my breath. And I saw this commercial on TV for Halsman Delictus, and the guy was talking, and he opened his mouth, and this this cartoon cloud came out, and it said Mentholictus. And I said, that's the right radius. That's the radius of my fume zone. And so from then on, 
I um, had Paul's Linda lift this on me at all times. And then to add to that, I said, you know, maybe if I eat spongy food in the morning, it'll soak up some of this extra alcohol. So I started eating Thomas's English muffins every morning because they look like sponges to me. <laughs> you know, and being an alcoholic is really complicated. <laughs> it's really complicated and exhausting. And my life is much simpler these days. <laughs> you know, anyway, um, other things. Uh, in sobriety, I have never received anonymous brochures about alcoholism in the mail. Now, this used to happen to me on a fairly regular basis, and I thought it was part of a, like a public health initiative to, in, to educate the public about alcoholism. I never thought that it was directed at me, but a few years into my sobriety, I noticed that the mailing seemed to have dried up mysteriously, so I don't know, maybe. <laughs> um, it's a variety, I've never gotten blackballed from a restaurant. Now, um, <laughs> I, used to, I used to get really hungry when I drank, and I called this, uh, this was before Seamless or anything like that. Um, I called this restaurant in, the, in a blackout, and I ordered some food. And when the guy got there, I forgot, what, I forgot that I had ordered the food, you know? And so I said, what are you doing here? And he's like, you know, he's talk, talking to me in some other language. I'm like, I don't understand what, what you're saying. I slammed the door. And then when I went to order food the next time, I'm like, no, not you. You didn't pay the last time. But anyway, you know, the thing is, my, my life was, was very chaotic. And I never connected um, my drinking to the chaos. You know, I never connected my drinking to the fires, to the composition. I bought all this. I never was able to make a connection between the drinking and the chaos. You know, so fast forward to, to my, my last year of, of drinking. You know, I knew that I had a problem. I knew about AA, but I didn't really want to stop drinking. I just wanted to stop getting drunk so often, you know? So I figured, okay, these people, they never drink, and they go to these meetings every day. So if I go twice a week, I probably could just get drunk two nights a week. <laughs> Didn't work out. <laughs> now, my last year of drinking, I was, I was engaged to be married, and my fiancé came from one of these British families where they, like, on the weekends, ride horses in little outfits and chase foxes around on horses and stuff. Now, in the meantime, my family... <laughs> My dad's gambling finally had landed him in a world of trouble, and he was on his way to prison. And I was thinking, oh my God, like who's going to give me away for my wedding, right? So my plan was to hire actors to pose as my, as my parents, because my, my, um, my future in-laws had never met my parents. So I figured that I could just like pass off some random actors as being my parents. But as a backup plan, I wrote a letter to the judge who was overseeing my dad's case, who was doing the sentencing, whatever you call it. And I asked him if he could please put my dad in jail after the wedding. And he did. So, <laughs> so my dad wound up um, giving me away. But anyway, about a month before, about a month before the wedding, I woke up out of a blackout and my, my fiance was staring at me. Thank you was staring at me, and um, he called off the wedding, right? I don't know what to this day, I don't know what I did. Um, uh, but he said that he couldn't marry a drunk, right? 
So I was devastated, you know, this was all these people coming from out of the country, everybody had their plane tickets already, it was a total disaster. You know, I managed to get back into his good graces. I stopped drinking for two weeks, but by the time of the wedding, I was off to the races again. And, um, and I, was complete, I got completely, completely smashed at my wedding. And one of my, my, um, my husband's friends who really didn't like me took a picture of me at the height of my drinking. And so I'm there with my wedding dress hanging off my shoulder, surrounded by overflowing ashtrays and champagne glasses. And I'm trying to get my eyes are half closed. I'm trying to get a cigarette into my mouth, but I'm missing, you know, because somehow that this is just too small a hole to navigate. And um, so she took a, a photo of me, and uh, she blew it up into an eight by ten glossy, put it in a sterling silver frame, and gave it to us as her wedding gift. And you know, I'm really grateful. Sorry. <laughs> um, I'm very grateful to her. To to this woman to this day, right? Because I have that photo and I can pull that photo out and look at it and see, you know, this is where you came from, you know? So anyway, um, two months after I got married, I went to a wedding in Virginia and I knew that I was gonna lose everything. I had accepted that I was doomed, you know? And um, I was seated next to somebody who wasn't drinking so I asked him what he did for a living, and he said he was a drug and alcohol counselor. And um, so I poured my heart out to him. I said, I, I can't stop drinking. I know that I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose my career. I'm going to lose my husband. But I can't stop. And he just got up. He never said a word to me, and he ran. Right? I never saw this man again. <laughs> but um, it turned out that he was from the Perry Street group here in New York. And he told somebody at the Perry Street group about this crazy woman that he met at a, at a wedding. And that person happened to have been one of my former supervisors and recognized me from the story. So that guy <laughs> tracked me down. And he, you know, he was in the, yeah, he tracked me down and he called me at work. And, you know, I had spoken to this guy in probably six, seven years. And we had never been personal friends. We'd never been on a personal basis. And he just launches into his drinking story, you know? So I'm standing in the middle of work, like, what the, right? And at the end of it, I said, well, you know, that's a, that's a very interesting and, and, and very personal story there. And he says, yeah, and I think you're in trouble. So why don't you come and meet me? And so I did. Now I showed up a little bit early and I ordered a vodka tonic because I thought I could pass it off as water, right? So I'm drinking this water when he arrives and the waiter comes over and says, would you like another vodka tonic? I'm like, what are you talking about? It's Pellegrino, what? <laughs> anyway, you know, so this, this is, this is how, how I got sober. And it was really, really tough for me to get sober. I counted days multiple times. Um, I lied about my day count multiple times because I was so ashamed of slipping. But eventually, um, you know, I, I got the message, and uh, you know, last last uh, August I celebrated 24 years of sobriety, which is a pretty incredible for somebody like me. Um, I always take notes, so I get nervous when I when I have to speak. You know, I. <laughs> 
I um, it was it was it was tough for me to get sober, also because my my husband really did not want me to get sober. So I just want to say, you know, like you can still get sober under totally unfavorable circumstances. You know, my 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 husband at the time threw a cocktail party on my 90 days deliberately. <laughs> okay, and then like every night. He would like sit next to me on the sofa, put his arm around me with a glass of wine, and like swirl it under my nose. I mean, he did everything that he possibly could to like try to derail my sobriety. And um, you know, I had a sponsor that I was actually really afraid of, and I think my fear of my sponsor <laughs> was stronger than my, my my husband's influence at the time. You know, so you can still you can still get um, sober under unfavorable circumstances. You know, this program has given me a chance to have a new life. Now, I remember the first spring that I experienced as a sober person, I felt like I, it was the first time I had ever witnessed the spring. I, I felt like I was seeing colors for the first time, you know, because my, my world had been so gray and monochromatic, you know, monodimensional and so small. Um, you know, um, I got to keep my career. I kept the marriage at least for a while. And um, <laughs> had two beautiful kids. All, you know, these are all gifts of this program. Um, but I, I hadn't really understood the message, right? So, not fully. So I had arrested my drinking, but I wasn't really practicing the program the way it was it's supposed to be practiced. And so, you know, really what I was doing was going to meetings and doing steps four, five, eight, and nine over and over again. And that kept me sober, right? It arrested my drinking. But what I didn't hear, and everybody kept saying, is that the drinking is a symptom, but the disease is in my mind, right? So by not really practicing the full program, I hadn't really treated the disease of my mind. So I arrested the drinking, but the mind disease continued to progress. And at 20 years, I wanted to end my life. And so I had to take a really, really close look at what I was doing and what I was not doing. And one of the things I was not doing was practicing step 11. And the reason I wasn't practicing step 11 is because I thought it was a filler step. Somehow I got it in my mind that the founders of AA just put that in there because they had only been able to come up with 11 steps and they didn't want to say that 11 steps of alcohol is anonymous, so they threw in a filler step to the kids. I believe that, anyway. So, <laughs> I have a different opinion about this now. Um, <laughs> so, basically, my, my feeling now is that step 11 is actually the most critical step <laughs> to practice. You know, this is where we actually access the power that we need to overcome this deadly and fatal disease, right? So step 11 is a power step. And the steps that come before that, steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, these are all aimed at removing the blocks that prevent us from having a clear connection to our higher power, right? So we remove all the garbage so that we can now be receptive to having a direct connection to our higher power. And what, for me, defines this as a spiritual program as opposed to a religious program is having that direct and personal connection to your higher power, right? I have a direct and personal connection to a higher power now. I have a two-way conversation with my higher power. 
right? So I actually, you know, so that, that two-way conversation is prayer and medication. The prayer is the talking, the medication is the listening, right? It's a two-way conversation. And for many years I did pray, but I didn't meditate, which means that I was the person doing all the talking, which is unbearable. That's an unbearable conversation, right? And it's also unbearable if you're just meditating. Like if, if you're the one, like if you ever have had tried to have a conversation with somebody who doesn't say anything and you have to do all the work, that's hard work. If you don't want to have that conversation either. So I pray and meditate, so I have a two-way conversation with my higher power. And what the meditation did was allow me to begin to, to not complete it, it put a distance between me and my thoughts, so that I could begin to observe my thoughts. And what I found is that my thoughts were overwhelmingly negative, you know? Like little ants, they weren't, you know, it wasn't like big negatives, it was just like walking down the street, oh my god, this person is so slow. <laughs> you know, what they get, why does this person know that the universal rule of walking on the sidewalk is that you're on the right side. They're walking on the left and they're creating chaos, you know, like all of these like things going on and it, 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 and it means that with all of this, even though I'm not voicing any of these thoughts of how I want other people to be, I'm still primed to be negative and reactive, right? So the meditation allowed me to separate myself from those thoughts and say, okay, let me just chill out and, and, and quiet these thoughts down, you know? It's really important for me to start my day with my higher power and end my day with my higher power, right? So as soon as I wake up, I try to go into silence and start listening, right? Because if I don't, that other voice comes up, that voice that says, oh, you're gonna run into so-and-so today, and she's gonna say this, and then I'm gonna say this, and then, you know, <laughs> and I'm having an argument before I'm even out of the bed, right? So I need to quiet that mind. Um, so, you know, today, because of this connection to my higher power, I feel loved, I feel lovable, I feel safe, and I feel taken care of. And it took a long time to get to that point. You know, it, it, at first, that love had to come from you guys, right? Because I didn't love myself, I hated myself. You know, but now, over time, that love comes from within, right? And because of this direct experience that I have of my higher power, I have things that have happened to me that make me know that I'm loved by my higher power. Remember, um, a few years back, nobody remembered my anniversary, and I felt very sorry for myself, you know? sponsor didn't remember, nobody remembered, I felt very sorry for myself. And just on a whim, I went out to um, Shelter Island, I have a place out on Shelter Island, but I hadn't intended to go. And then while I was out there, just on a whim, I decided to go to a meeting. And when I was walking up the church stairs, the first person I encountered said, happy anniversary, Samaya. Whoa, thanks, the next person. Happy anniversary. Hey, thanks. I get inside. They have a cake for me. <laughs> they had a seat for me. They had a car. I couldn't believe it because I, I go out there maybe, like I go to that meeting maybe twice a year, but every day for the month, my anniversary month, they had announced that it was my anniversary and these people remember and they had a cake for me and if I hadn't gone on this whim, I never would have known, right? 
And this one woman came up to me with a card, you know, and she was really, really concerned that she had spelled my name wrong because my name is a little bit complicated. And I was like, don't worry about it. And then I realized that she had put her son in his, she had buried her son the previous day. He was, he died from this disease. And the next day she comes to the meeting with a card for me and is worried about the spelling of my name. I mean, the love that I have gotten from the people in this room is just beyond anything that I can describe. And, you know, that to me was my higher power saying, I got you. I remember that it's your anniversary and I'm gonna see to it that you, that you feel loved. And how incredible is that, right? You know, um, this program has um, allowed me to be, be me as opposed to somebody that somebody's done something to, right? <laughs> I, I can get back to the me that was always meant to be. And just as a, as a final note, I want to talk a little bit about my dad. He became my best friend. You know, his, his prison stint <laughs> cured him of his, his gambling. And he made a living amends to me. For the last 25 years, he's made a living amends to me for all the things that he's done. And he became my best friend and confidant. And he, um, I celebrated his 92nd birthday with him over the weekend. And he's, he's dying of cancer, you know? And so I wrote him a letter, and um, you know, because he's haunted by all the things that he did when I was growing up. And I wrote him a letter saying, you know, these are all the things that you did right. These are all the priceless gifts that you've given to me, and you're my best friend. And this program has allowed me to have that relationship with my father, to have a life beyond my wildest dreams. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> Maya and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs>